years ago, we began to see that the church in the town was the church for us. It was the church of Belleville. And then I moved here and I talked about, uh, I remember when we did one of the services in the park and I talked about the church of Landmark. And the church of Landmark is a body and it's made up of different parts. And there's a role that Prairie Rose fills, and there's a role that Heartland fills, and there's a role that Saturday Night Church fills, and there's a unique role that LCF fills. And, and that's not something you have to shy away from. That's something that's a unique calling that this, this community needs. So I do, I join with you in praying for the right, the right person to, to come in and be able to take what, what is uniquely LCF's calling as part of the body of the Church of Landmark. And so I do want to, I want to be praying for you guys and, and blessing you in that. And I think you guys, there's a, a great future in store. And uh, looking forward to seeing how this, this plays out. That's part of my role is uh, trying to find pastors for, for churches. And it's, it's a bit of a challenge because there's a struggle right now. There's a, there's a shortage of pastors. There's a shortage of people that want to go into ministry. And, and we began to, uh, to look at this, and this has been one of my summer projects. I said, you know, the time we should have started working on this is about 20 years ago. And I remember being part of a workshop about 20 years ago where the pr- person presenting said, we're going to have a shortfall down the road of pastors. And I remember sitting there 20 years ago and going, hmm, somebody should do something about that. But that's, that's 20 years down the road. That's somebody else's problem. And then I get here. And I realize it's my problem, and uh, trying to find people, and trying to find um, good leaders, leaders who have a heart for the gospel, who have a heart for Christ, and want to lead and, and be a part of something that's, that's bigger than themselves. And that's part of, in my thinking, brought me to, to work on some of this stuff that I have today that I'm sharing with you, that this, this thing about knowing ourselves and understanding ourselves, and it's a bit of my journey and what I've experienced. So I've been doing this for, what, 32, how long have we been married? 34, 34 years. 32 good years, 34 years. Um, And all along that journey, it's been uh, in ministry. It's been learning as much as I learned about Christ, I learned about myself. And that's part of the, the journey that I've been on. And, and so when I was looking at some of this and reading some of this, I, I got into a whole bunch of readings that I've been doing. And, and one of the things I came across was some of Socrates. And Socrates is credited with saying this. He, he says, to know thyself is the beginning of wisdom. And carved on this, this Apollo, temple for Apollo, and this isn't a Christian thing, are the words, know thyself. And it's this deep philosophical question that we've had is, can you really know who you are? Can you really understand yourself? And so philosophers, they go into this whole thing, and you kind of, as you read it, you kind of get all twisted up because philosophy kind of takes you on these, these tangents sometimes. But some would say that you can't really know yourself because who you were yesterday is not who you are today. And who you are today is not going to be who you are tomorrow. That, that we're affected by the things that we experience in life, we're affected by what's going on around us, we're affected by the people that we encounter. So it's hard for us to really know ourselves. And, and growing up in church, and, and, and I looked at this, that those who are kind of born and raised going to church sometimes have a greater struggle 
understanding who they are in Christ than those who come into the kingdom at a later age. Because we kind of grow up in it, and, and it's kind of part of our family, and it's part of our culture, and it's part of our community, and it's part of our youth and experiences. And, and all of these things get, get kind of mixed in. And, and then when you begin to look and say, but who am I in the eyes of Christ? We struggle. So back in uh, summer of 2010, right around there, I, was, I had a, a, a little bit, I wasn't a full sabbatical, but I had a little bit of time to do some assessment in ministry, and we had been in the church we were in for a number of years, and, and I was beginning to look and say, well, where are we going? What are we doing? What's the vision for the church? What? But the real question was, what am I doing? And so I began to, to work backwards, and my experience there was to go, uh, well, what, what decisions have brought me to this point where I was in the church that I was in? And I began to work backwards and look at the decisions that I had made and the experiences that I had had and, and looked at, you know, the family that we had and, and the decision to get married and the Bible college and the, the experiences that I had in youth and the sports involvement and all of those things. And I began to, to back those all up to begin to try to understand, well, who am I really? And I get back to kind of the beginning and, and I'm still a little confused, so I went, well, I'm going to... I'm going to go a little bit deeper into my genealogy. Like, what does it mean to be a Woodworth? And so I started to do some research in that. And as I began to research out that, it turns out that the, the first Woodworth to land in North America was a man by the name of Walter at the age of 23. And he came over in 1635. He was 15 years behind the Mayflower and landed in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and settled there, and then, then relocated down to the Boston area, and then down into Connecticut. And then around the time of the Revolutionary War, that line, my line, kind of appears in Nova Scotia. So I don't know if they left because of the war, but they end up in Nova Scotia, and they kind of work their way into New Brunswick and up the St. John River to Fredericton, New Brunswick. And then a few generations go by, and then I'm born. And I began to look at that, and I went, well, that doesn't still doesn't help me understand who am I and what am I. And in that whole thing, I looked for people that were famous, and, and you come across a name of, oh, I recognize that name, but it wasn't the same one. And, and you try to find some identity to go, this is, this is who I am. This is the essence of, of me. And I found that it was, a, it was tough to really grasp that. So I discovered this in that journey, is that the question was not, who are you? But the question was, why are you? The, the who I was was really wrapped up in, in why I was the way I was. And as I began to look at this and talk with this with other people, I began to realize that a lot of us share that, that experience. That who we are right now, today, is the, is the sum total of all those, all those encounters that we've had, all those experiences that we've had. It's the sum total of, of, of what we've experienced in church and what we've heard in church and, and what we've experienced in community and how our family was and, and what our life was like going to school and did the teachers encourage us or discourage us. And all of those things kind of pull together and they kind of end up producing where we are in the moment. And so I began to look and realize that the who I am was really based on the, the why I am. And that brought me back to saying, Lord, what, what, are you, what are you doing with me? And where am I with you? 
Because that became the haunting question. Is, is I, I, I began to look and I say, based on, on what I am, I began to look at how I respond to life. And I began to realize that I was very defensive on a lot of things just because of the things that I experienced in life. And, and, and when I began to really press into where I was with Jesus, I began to realize that I kept Jesus just at a distance because it was safer that way. And so I would build a whole bunch of things around my life that I needed to do to appease Jesus. But I began to realize I was reluctant to really know Jesus and kind of reluctant to let Jesus really know me. And it was all a big illusion because I know that the Lord knew me better than, than I knew myself, but I, I found myself struggling with that. Struggling with the question of, do I really trust Jesus? Because the really question was, do I really trust myself to give myself fully to Jesus? So then it brings me around to, to ask the question, what does it mean to be a good Christian? What does it mean to be a good charismatic? What does it mean to be a good Baptist? What does it mean to be a good Wesleyan? Whatever your denomination is, whatever your, your culture is, you begin to look at that question and say, all right, I've got to get better. I've got to do better. So what does it mean to really be a good Christian? What does it really mean to be a good whatever we want to be? And I began to realize that growing up in church and going to Bible college and even being a pastor... There was a sharing of the gospel, the sharing of the story of Jesus. But it was a sharing of the story of Jesus and something else. And the something else was the culture that we interpreted about serving Jesus. So we would say, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for you, and this is what you need to do to be right with him. So this is how you need to worship. This is how you need to go to church. This is what you need to believe. This is what you need to practice. This is what you can say. This is what you can't say. This is what you should do, and this is what you shouldn't do. And, and, and I realize, and it's just part of nature, just part of who we are, is that, that we take the message of Jesus, but we don't really understand the message of Jesus unless we put it into this, this box that says, this is how you now behave. This is how you need to act. And then we step into that box, and sometimes we begin to stick our head up and realize we're kind of lost in that. And we look at our own lives and we say, well, but, but who am I really? And we realize that, that we're kind of the sum total of everything that we think we ought to be. And being honest with the Lord is sometimes a struggle. And then within church, a lot of times, we emphasize the essentials of this is what God's word says and this is what we ought to do, but then we also highlight our preferences. This is how we then translate it. This is how we then live it out. And we sometimes mesh all those things together and we have a hard time kind of sorting it out. So it brings us back to this question. Today, do you really know yourself? Do you really know who you are in the sight of God? Do you really know who you are, and do you really understand why you are the way you are? So I'm a kind of a perpetual learner, so I've done all these personality tests and all these things, and I keep thinking something new is going to come out, and I keep doing these tests, and it keeps telling me the same thing. 
And then I keep trying to go, okay, then I, I look at my weaknesses and I go, I need to work on my weaknesses and I need to get better at that. And, and, I, and I try to, to be better. I try to, to, to be more like somebody else than, than to really embrace myself. And that can tie you up in all kinds of knots. Because it's a loaded question when we really look at do we understand ourselves. And it becomes even more complicated when we take who we are and why we are what we are and what we think is important about who we are and then we say, Jesus loves you unconditionally. Do you accept that? And we know so much about ourselves that for some of us, it can actually be hard to accept that unconditional love. So that took me on a journey. Because I went, well then, how do we do this? How do we live this? And I ended up stumbling back on, on what the practice was at the time of Jesus for educating kids. What Jesus would have grown up in. How Jesus would have developed as a young person. So as I began to look at this, I began to see that the religious education started with what was called Bet Sefer. And Bet Sefer is a time for boys and girls who are 6 to 10 years old. And they would go and they would learn Torah. Torah is the first five books of the Bible, the ones Jen rattled off there very quickly. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? But when I say they would learn it, I don't mean they would just kind of get an overview of it. I mean they would learn it in terms of they would memorize it. At six to ten years old, they would systematically go through those books and, and memorize every word of it. And to do that, what they would do is on the very first day of class, they would give the kids this little, little dab of honey. And honey, in the time of Jesus, would have been like candy to them. And they would give that to them, and they would let these kids all of a sudden start to, to eat this honey. And as they were eating this honey, they would begin to read the scripture that the word of God is to be like honey on your lips. Because they wanted to set up right from the very beginning with these six-year-olds, boys and girls, that knowing the word of God was to be an enjoyable experience for them. That it was going to be a treat to them. It was going to be like honey to them. It was going to be rich and glorious and wonderful. So when they would start, it wasn't a, a burden to have to do this. It was, it was this joy to learn the word of God and to understand the word of God. So this bet sefer would mean, bet means house, and sefer would mean the house of the book, or the school of the book, if you will. And the word of God was meant to be seen as an experience that was pleasurable and to be, be really savored by them. Now, if you're a good student, when you hit 10, you would graduate if you had done what you were supposed to do. If you memorized the first five books of the Bible and you could recite those first five books, then if you were a male, you could go on to the next part. And the next part was what they called Bet uh, Talmud. And Bet Talmud, or sorry, Bet Sefer. What did they call the first one? Called the same thing, didn't they? It's a house of learning, this Bet Talmud. And Bet Talmud is the house of learning, and that's where you would begin to learn this, this little practice. It was a Jewish thing that they would do. And you see it, Jesus does it, and he does it as an adult, and you, we don't understand it all the time. But they would learn to, that, that they would, the teacher would ask a question. And then instead of just reciting the answer, you were expected to ask a follow-up question 
that would prove that you had understanding by the way that you asked the question. So you ever notice that with Jesus is they come and they say, well, master, which one is the, you know, this or that? And, and Jesus would respond back to them. And I ask you this question. You ever see how they do that back and forth? Well, that's part of their learning. So you could say, well, why is the sky blue? And you would look and you say, why is it that our eyes, when we look to the skies, filter out these other colors of the spectrum? And you go, oh, okay, you have an understanding of why the sky is blue. And they would do this. Now, you remember the story of Jesus when his family went to Jerusalem to, to celebrate and then they left him behind? Which, if you have multiple kids, it's possible. You lose track. And they lose track of Jesus, who's 12 at the time, traveling for three days. They finally realize they don't have Jesus. They come back. You remember the story? And they come back and they find him where? In the temple. And it says there that, that they were amazed at the questions he was asking. And we think, well, he must have been very curious. And it's like, no, no, no. They were amazed that as they asked questions, he understood that scripture so much that he would bring questions back to them to demonstrate that he had this depth of knowledge of the scriptures that astonished the Bible teachers. Because when you look at Jesus in, the, in that phase of the Bet Tamald, he was a good student. And the good students, after that stage, when they were 14 years, they could graduate to the next phase. And the next phase was Beth Midrash, Midrash. And Beth Midrash was for the boys who were 14 years old and older, the ones who knew the, the first five books of the Bible, the ones who knew, as they studied, the rest of the Bible, could go on to this house of study. And the house of study would, would go deeper into what the scriptures meant. And they would go through these exercises. And when they got to the end of that stage, they would say to the rabbi, Rabbi, I want to go further. I want to be part of your house of study. Can I be a part of your midrash? And the rabbi would look, and they always had big long beards, and they'd probably stroke the beard and say, well, let me ask you a few questions. And they would ask some questions. And they would listen for the answer. They would listen for the question to come back. Because the rabbi wanted to know, do you, as a student, have what it takes to be like me? Do you have what it takes to take the scriptures and understand them kind of the way I understand them? Because a, a rabbi in the different camps would be like denominations we have. They all had a different take on things. And so they would want students who also shared that take, kind of were part of that same denomination. But they wanted students that they could be proud of, that they knew that they could entrust with these things. So they only wanted the best of the best. And the best of the best could go on to continue to study with the rabbi when the rabbi would look at them and say, Lak akarai, which meant, come follow me. And come follow me meant, you have what it takes to be just like me. Come, be my disciple, and I will teach you. Now, if you didn't measure up, but you thought you did, and you went through this testing phase and you didn't pass, and the rabbi would nicely look at you and say, oh, you don't quite have what it takes 
go home, do the family trade, make babies, and pray that one of them becomes a rabbi. And so the ones who didn't pass went home and picked up the family business and went on with life. You had to be good enough to be able to go into this house of study. So then here's the question. Now here's where you have to think. Jesus goes through that. So we got him up to age 12, and then there's this big gap. We don't really have anything written about him until he's in his 30s. And then he reappears on the scene. And what's Jesus' job when he reemerges? What's his job? And sometimes we look and we say, well, he was a carpenter, of course. There's songs about him being a carpenter. There's pictures about him being a carpenter. He was a, he was a carpenter, but he wasn't a carpenter. He was a rabbi. He was a teacher. Now you say, well, wait a minute. I, I, I think I recall that somewhere along the lines, they, they called him a, a carpenter, and, and you'd be right. They did. And you know where they called him a carpenter? In his, in his hometown, where they went, isn't this the... Isn't this the carpenter? He's not, like, what's he doing teaching? He doesn't qualify as a teacher. We just know him as a, a carpenter. But you know what else they said about him? They said, isn't this Mary's son? And you go, well, that's, what's the big deal with that? As a male, you weren't identified by your mother. You were identified by your father. The, the people from his hometown knew the story, knew the rumors and they look, and they don't give credit back to Joseph. They don't say, this is the son of Joseph and Mary. They say, this is the son of Mary, highlighting the fact we know he's, his father is kind of in question. It was a slight. So when they called him a carpenter, that was to devalue his role as a teacher. And you go and you look that up, and at the top of the heading, it's something like a prophet without honor in his hometown. But what you see repeated over and over again in the, in the Gospels is Jesus is actually called about 13 times a rabbi. And about 41 times he's called a good teacher or a teacher. And people would come up to him on the street and, and call him rabbi. They would address him. and They would come to him with the problems that they had because that's what rabbis do. Rabbis teach. Rabbis make disciples. And rabbis give answers and solve dilemmas that people had. And then Jesus goes out. And he does what all rabbis do, is they begin to gather disciples. So he goes to people like Peter and James and John and, and those ones, and what does he say to them? He says, Lak akarai, come follow me. He makes a declaration that was a rabbi declaration to the boys to say, I believe you have what it takes to be like, just like me, come and follow me. And he does this to a couple of fishermen, Peter and Andrew, and they're fishing. So here's the question, why are Peter and Andrew fishing? And you would give the most sensible answer, because they are fishermen. And their father was a fisherman. It was the trade that they had. And Jesus comes along and he talks to them, and he says, as a rabbi to these fishermen, I believe you have what it takes to be just like me. Come and follow me. So 
what an honor, they drop their nets and they go and they follow him. Now, if you're paying attention to this morning, what's the real reason that Peter and Andrew are fishing? Because they didn't have what it took to be a disciple of any other rabbi that they knew. That somewhere in those phases, they flunked out. They didn't measure up. And because they didn't measure up, they went back to the trade. And Jesus comes along to them, and he, he doesn't say to them, oh, man, there's just such a shortage of disciples. I got nothing. Will you guys follow me? I know you failed. I know you were rejects, but will you, will you fill in a couple of spots for me? He doesn't do that with them. And you know that's not his attitude with them. He looks at Peter and James with great optimism, and he says what any rabbi would say to a good student, come follow me. Because I believe you have just what it takes to be just like me. But he doesn't just say that. Jesus goes even further. He says, come follow me. Not you rejects, since I've got no one else to follow me. But he says, you come and follow me. And not only will you do the things that I've done, but you will be able to do even greater things than me. Rabbis didn't say that. The best you were going to be was to be a student with the teacher, but you would rarely surpass the teacher. But Jesus, right from the start, says, you, my followers, my disciples, will do even greater things than me. All those that didn't outwardly show that they had the skill to be Bible scholars or great teachers were viewed by Jesus to be capable of doing extraordinary things in the kingdom of God that he saw something in them that others didn't see and that they didn't even see themselves. So it brings us back to these two questions. Who are you? And what are you? And when you think about your life as a, as a follower of Jesus, as a, as a Christian, going to church on a Sunday morning, do you have what it takes to be just like Jesus? Have you learned enough scripture to be qualified to be a good student of Jesus? Do you have enough grasp of theology to be able to, to stand up against any opposition and to be able to clearly know what is right and what is wrong? Have you got enough experiences in church to be competent in all areas? Do you personally have what it takes to be a student of Jesus Christ and to do the things that Jesus did with the expectation of doing even more? And that's where I got stuck. Because when I looked at my life, I always imagined that at some point in my career, I would get to the point where I go, I think I got a handle on this now. But to be honest, the Lord keeps stretching so that every time I think I got a handle on it, he adds something and we go a step further and I step back into that territory of going, I'm not sure if I got what it takes. 
Because I still instinctively look at myself and say, am I personally capable of doing this and carrying this load? And that becomes a real struggle. So here's what I have to do. I have to go back and say, first of all, what does a rabbi do? And a rabbi will teach and they will preach. And that's what Jesus does. So as 12 disciples, they go with him. In Matthew chapter 11, you have this story that begins to unfold. And, and these disciples are going along. Now, they know, if they're really honest with themselves, that they don't really have what it takes. They know they, there's times when Jesus is talking and they're going, I, I, don't even know what he's, I don't even know what he's talking about here. There's times that you see where he's having dialogue with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, and they're going back and forth. And you can imagine these 12 disciples just sitting there going, you, I, I have no idea what's happening here. They're into a depth of understanding that is beyond us. And, and, and in some ways, they would go off and Jesus would do miracles and he would do these things and he would turn to them and say, well, you, are you going to do this? Do you want to do this? And they would look and say, we don't, we don't know how to do that. They felt so inadequate. And, and, and in many ways, by Matthew chapter 11, it could be, you could argue, an advantage that they don't know anything. Because now they're coming in with a clean slate. And all they can do is trust Jesus. So Jesus begins to work with them. And then in verse 2 it says, they introduce John the Baptist. And you'd have to ask, what was John the Baptist? Well, his father was a priest. So he should have been a priest, but he's not a priest. He has disciples, but he's not a rabbi. He goes out into the wilderness and he's, and he's teaching and he's, he's baptizing He's not a rabbi, and Jesus actually identifies that what he is, that what you see in, in, in down in chapter, chapter 11, but down at the bottom of verse 9, that Jesus identified that he was a prophet. And not only was he a prophet, a, a spokesperson for God, but it says that he was a very special prophet. So in verse 10 it says, this is the one that Malachi talked about, where Malachi said, I will send a messenger ahead of you who will be prepared the place for you. So we see that, that John is a prophet, and he's this, this foretold, the one. And you think, well, this guy had all the qualifications. He's really special. But then Jesus, Jesus says this to his disciples, the ones who had failed out of class. The ones who didn't have what it takes to be follow any other rabbi, but they're there with Jesus. And Jesus looks and he goes, now this, this guy here, he said, I don't want you to miss the fact, he's really, really special. He's really unique. They, other prophets actually talked about him. But anybody who becomes my disciple will be counted even greater than him. Now, you could say that's a bit of an ego boost to the ones that are following but imagine if you were there. Would that make you feel, hmm, I'm special? Or would you look at yourself and go, I don't think you know who I am. I don't think you know all my flaws. I don't think you know that I have no idea what you're talking about half the time. And it's probably the point where they start to kind of question if they're in over their heads. So Jesus does something. I love the way he, he operates. Because he does some things. I'm like, oh, that's a, 
That's an interesting move when you really pull back. So in verse 25, Matthew 11, verse 25, Jesus prays. He's not talking to his disciples. He's praying. But he does one of the Jesus prayers where he prays out loud so that people can hear him. He does this a few times. I always get a kick out of it. And he begins to pray to God. And he says, I praise you, Father, Lord in heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to the little children. And he prays this prayer that he wants his disciples to hear. And he prays a prayer that he wants you to hear because you're reading it today. We're talking about it today. It's in your scriptures. So he wants you to get this. Where he says, I want you to understand the principle. That it's not only the best of the best, the ones who measure up, the ones who seemingly have what it takes that I'm going to reveal to it. But he says, I want you to understand that people like you are the people that it gives great pleasure to the Father to show you things and to use you to do things that are extraordinary. That you, in, in who you are, and me, and who I am, with all of my limitations, with all my shortcomings, with everything about me that I know doesn't measure up to the standard that I have, all of a sudden I have to wrestle with the fact, and, and you will have to wrestle with this too, that it gives great pleasure to the Father to use people like you and people like me to do extraordinary things. And he uses that word children very intentionally. Because the children are the ones who are starting their education. Not the ones who have graduated on the other side. Because that would be an adult. He says, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to those who recognize their limitations. To reveal things that are extraordinary and great. And then he prays this, or he speaks this, rather, in verse 28. And look at this, this passage, because you, you, you want to look and see who gets the invitation here. Who is invited to be a student of Jesus? Who is invited to be a pupil of this rabbi? Who is invited to be, be a follower of Jesus? And Jesus makes the declaration, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. And, and I begin to look at that, and you think about this. When I think about my life and when I have been most burdened, it was when I would do a real thorough examination of myself and found that I felt like I couldn't carry the weight of measuring up to the standard that I felt was there whether it's just as a Christian, whether it's as a leader within the church, whatever the capacity is, when I felt like I didn't have what it takes, that was like a burden. And Jesus says this, any one of you who are like that, any one of you who feel that you're overwhelmed trying to measure up, you come to me. And then he uses a rabbi term. Because remember I talked about the different rabbis and their different kind of like denominations and different, different takes on things? What they would do is they would say, Based on our, our take on things, this is what I refer to as my yoke. 
my style of interpretation, my style of ministry. And a lot of times, some of them were very strict, and they had very strict rules, and they would have to follow these very strict rules, and other ones had very disciplined study techniques, so they would have to take that on. Jesus says this, any one of you who is weary and burdened, come to me, because my yoke, not that it's simple, but my yoke eases the burdened and doesn't add to it. So now we're, we're faced with this as believers. Do you truly believe that stepping into a relationship with Jesus eases the burden of, am I good enough? Or has your experience been like me, that it's still a struggle to feel like I'm good enough even when we're trying to engage with Jesus? So what he puts out there is anyone who wants to follow him, he wants you to know that you have exactly what it takes to be just like him. But to be just like him means he becomes the priority. So we go back to this. We spend a lot of time and energy trying to understand ourselves, to know ourselves, and we know that that is the beginning of wisdom. We try to be good enough. We try to be faithful enough. We try to do all these things that we think are important. But we know ourselves too well. And we know that even when we try really, really hard to be really, really good followers of Christ, that we come up short. And sometimes we let those thoughts get in our head of do you even have anything good to contribute to God's kingdom? Do you even have anything good to contribute to your church? Are you an asset at all to the body of Christ? So when we come to the realization that we need to come to, that it's not about me, that it's all about Christ. That that's not just a saying that we have, but when we come to him, that's the beginning of the wisdom that we seek. We come to him, all who are burdened, and he will give us rest. Now, here's the thing. What you do matters. When I say that, that we want to come to him, it doesn't mean we just come to him when we do nothing. What you do matters. How you live, how you behave, how you interact with others, that matters. But the most important thing to understand is this. That in all you're doing, it's not about what you do or what you know. It's about the priority and the sequence of things that you do. So the first thing you want to do is come to Jesus. Then go and do. Come to Jesus. Then go and be what you need to be. So we're not saying that you stop doing anything, that what you do in your life isn't important and how you interact with people is important. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying is we try to do in order to impress the Lord instead of coming to the Lord, accepting who we are in him, and then going and doing. And so when Jesus sets this up, he sets it up to say, this is, this is the, the sequence. Come to me and trust me that I see you as having what it takes to do the things that I do and even more. Come to me and grasp that. Come to me and accept that and then go and do. He gives us rest. He, he, he sets us up to work out of that place of rest and to be effective in transforming other people. 
Now, here's something that I, I was drawn to, and this is, this is lately this is, has shaken me and rattled me in a good way. As you go back to Matthew chapter 4, back to the calling of those first disciples, where he says, come and follow me. And he's speaking to fishermen that are fishing. Fishermen that, that failed out of their, their religious education course. And he goes to them and he says, come and follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. He uses a term that is familiar with them. He goes, I'm not fundamentally changing who you are. Who you are is not the problem. But I'm going to take who you are and use it for my kingdom. But the most important thing that he says there is this line. Follow me. Step one. And look what he says next. I will make you. We spend most of our Christian lives trying to make ourselves good enough, trying to make ourselves appealing enough, trying to make ourselves worthy to be loved by God. And Jesus says, no, you got to get the process here. Come to me first. And when you come to me, I will make you extraordinary. You come to me, that's your duty, your obligation. And when you come to me, then I will make you. That's one that even after all these years, I still wrestle with. Because ingrained in my whole psyche, based on everything that, that I've kind of grown up in and, and done, it, it's no, 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 I've got I've to be better. I've got to know more. I've got to be right. I've got I to make people happy. I've got to do all of these things. And the Lord's saying, no, no, you've missed, you missed the priority step. You come to me. Trust me. And then I will make you. Extraordinary. So when we look at this, we know that we spend a lot of time trying to make ourselves into what we think Jesus wants. And what Jesus wants is for us to be really good followers of him every day. To, to, to engage with him in prayer every day. To, to get into his word and read his word so that we can understand his word every day. To, to be able to worship him every day. To, to pray for others every day. To, to step into that where we make it a priority to step into that relationship with Jesus every day. And then say, now Lord, what do you want me to do? Work through me. Speak through me. Guide me today. That we put off trying to perform for God and we let Jesus be priority in our lives and then guide our paths and set our course. And just like the metamorphosis of a caterpillar into a butterfly, you begin to realize that the Lord begins to transform you because his word says, you follow me and I will make you into something extraordinary. So you take that as a church. You're praying for a pastor. Focus on, on being what Christ wants you to be, and he will make you into what he wants you to be. We realize that it takes a lot of faith 
to really know ourselves through the eyes of Jesus. It takes a lot of faith because we have to come to Jesus and accept that he looks at you and he looks at me and he goes, I love you. I love you so much. I think you're wonderful. To have the faith to believe that Jesus looks at you and says, I believe you've got exactly what it takes to be just like me. And, and, and I, you know, I even think you can even do more than what I ever did. Have the faith to believe that, that his word says that if you just come to him, then, that he will make you into something that you could never be yourself. To have the faith to really trust that his word is true. So the words he leaves us with is this. Come to Jesus, all you who are weary and burdened, and he will give you rest. And will work alongside you and draw out the good that's in you and use you for the glory of the Father. That he will take LCF, as LCF presses in to know Jesus more and more, that he will take LCF and he will cultivate that and use that and prepare that to do the work that it's called to do that is beyond what you could ever orchestrate on your own. That as you, as a man of God, step in to know Jesus more, that Jesus will take your life and he'll take all those good things that are in you and he will draw out that good that's already a part of you and he'll use that to do things that you might not even imagine doing. That you, as a woman of God, can come to Jesus and know that Jesus loves you in an extraordinary way, that you don't have to be everything and don't have to be the super mom, the super lady that does all of these things, that you come to him and then Jesus takes you and goes, now here's the things that I really love about you because I knit these into your very being and I want to use those things to do extraordinary things for my kingdom. And we go away. There's no list of 10 things I need to do. There's no list of priorities that I need to put in. There's no doctrine that is, is the most important here. It's, it's as simple as starting with the priority of allow yourself to be truly loved by Jesus. I'm not even saying that your first priority is to go and demonstrate love to Jesus. Your first priority is to go and receive love from Jesus. And then you begin to get amazed at how the Lord uses those things to do things for his kingdom. So I want to encourage you this, this summer just to, to trust him. And, and I've been challenged in this new role because all of a sudden I'm going, oh, I feel like I'm in over my head again. And I realized it was just what I needed to hit the reset button and go, I, I let my relationship with Jesus lapse. I got busy doing work. COVID made us really, really busy. And I forgot to take the time to breathe in that real life of God's love. So now in this role, I made this a priority. And I'm championing this everywhere I go now. Press into the Lord. See what he has for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. That is, it's, it's like a bottomless well that is just gets purer and purer the deeper we go in it. And Lord, that uh, right at the very beginning is this thing that keeps coming back that you love us. 
that I know that we, we can look at ourselves and evaluate ourselves and we can look at our church and we can evaluate our church, but Lord, it really bring, brings us back to this place. Do we really trust with all of our heart that you love us dearly? So Lord, I pray that for each man and woman here today, for everyone that's here, young and old, that we would get and allow ourselves to experience a freshness of that encounter with you where you initiate the come follow me. That you see, that we accept that you see things in us that are good, that you see things in us that are valuable, that you see things in us that are dear. And you love us in an extraordinary way. And Lord, before we get into busyness of everything else this fall, may we come to that realization that we are dearly loved by you and that we would come and have the faith to believe that. So as we worship you to close off, Lord, just speak to our hearts. And may we just be renewed in our very soul. May we just be refreshed. May we find that real rest in you so that we can go and do extraordinary things for you by your power. And we pray for this church that you would guide their path, that you would direct their path, that they won't run ahead, that they won't get anxious, but they will rest and watch as you orchestrate things that are beyond their expectations. So Lord, bless this body. Bless this church and bless each member of it. And Lord, may you do an extraordinary work in this town that the Church of Landmark will be strengthened and encouraged. And even this unity service coming up, Lord, would just be an extraordinary testimony of the spirit of unity that is being nurtured and growing in this community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.